Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and The Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Kanjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Welcome to this episode of The Grower and The Economist. Today, I have presented Peter with an interesting topic. We are located in Massachusetts. It has been a very mild winter, the warmest January on record. And in mid-February, we're talking about the low 60s. And so this has led to a lot of conversations and news articles about how the climate is changing faster in New England than a lot of other places. It's the temperatures are getting warmer quicker. And in agriculture, we're seeing that trees, instead of being tapped for maple syrup at the end of February or the beginning of March, people are talking about tapping their trees in January. So part of the reason that I reached out to Peter was because in my house, Uriel, my husband, he likes to tap trees as a hobby and I like to start seeds. And so now the question is, do we follow the schedule we've been used to for the last couple years? Or do we shift everything forward because the climate is warmer? And I understand part of it is that there's this global weirding, to quote Thomas Friedman. So there is a chance that we're going to have some severe frost in March or April. But I don't want to miss the window. And then one other interesting thing to point out is I was reading this morning in preparing for this episode that some of the models predict that by 2070, the climate in Massachusetts will be what we're used to seeing in North Carolina. So it's a big shift. And for agriculture that really is at the whims of the weather, it does raise questions about how and when people start to adjust. So since Peter taught me about crop scheduling and thinking about when to start your plants and planning your season, I decided to bring this question to him and hopefully he has some interesting insights to share. Well, that's a really good lead in, Michelle. Thanks for bringing this topic up. Two days ago, I filled my household heating oil tank. I'm still on uh, fuel oil, not with on natural gas on my street. And I paid $4.10 a gallon, which is the most that I've ever paid in my life. So my wife and I are kind of chasing each other around the house, adjusting thermostats, turning down. I swear there are ice crystals on the insides of my <laughs> kids' bedrooms that are no longer uh, heated. Uh, so it's, it's a, a really interesting topic. As the uh, driver of the uh, heating oil truck, we've struck up a a friendship, casual friendship, and we were talking after he filled the tank before he left, and we both agreed, being native New Englanders, this is really weird. You used that that word before. In fact, I don't like it. Many of us don't like it. We'd rather it be cold. Two weekends ago, we went down below zero, and everybody lost their minds. And uh, that's closer to normal than what you and I are experiencing this week. And you having grown up in Maryland, and I worked in Maryland for a couple of years, it scares the bejeebers out of me when you say in 2070, 
our climate here in Massachusetts or New England might approach the mid-Atlantic or even North Carolina by 2070. I'll no longer be with you. So in that respect, I won't have to suffer and complain and, and moan about uh, how the weather's changed. I hope the humidity, I hope that doesn't accompany the increased temperatures, Michelle. Have you read anything about that? Because my years in Maryland uh, were miserable. I was not used to the humidity from spring to fall. Yeah, I haven't noticed specifically how that will affect the humidity and stuff. But I think that from a crop perspective, just not having those harsh freezes, you see that from the you know pest and pest management, it, it changes conversations a lot. And when I was at the Veggie Berry Grower Association meeting a couple weekends ago in Vermont, it's interesting. We had seen earlier, we've had earlier conversations about how you can take pictures of things that are happening in your fields or in your greenhouse and send them along to extension to find out what's going on. And a lot of people are doing that, but the extension is having to forward those pictures south because they are pests and diseases and fungus that we're not used to seeing because of those harsh freezes. And that's all impacting the environment as well. The prevalence in New England of bittersweet it's only been in the last decade that I've ever seen it here in New England. That doesn't mean it didn't exist, but it's become so invasive. And I'm sure that's correlated to some of the rising temperature and uh, favoring its establishment. So if you're correct, if what you read is correct, and in decades our climate here is going to continue warming, please don't arrive at a day where we have Spanish Spanish moss growing or hanging from our trees. A few years, a decade or so ago, Michelle, I, I had a lot of fun growing an ornamental banana in my backyard. And it survived for a half a dozen years. It's hardy in, in, this, uh, in this zone. Uh, and I planted it as a, a single small plant, two feet tall. And within five or six years, it was up to a cluster of two dozen shoots that were 10 and 12 feet tall. And I had so much fun growing it. I actually, I lost it because of a root root disease, root infection. So it, it declined and I no longer have it, but it was a lot of fun. So you, you see, I'm hypocritical here. I'm enjoying growing ornamental tropicals, yet I don't want the environment to become tropical. But if let's zero in on, on your question. I think with the mild winter, you're kind of hitting a nail on the head where it's, in my opinion, it's more of the outdoor agriculture, the maple syrup industry, the farms, the field farmers. For, for someone like me who's spent my career, most of my career in the greenhouse, in a controlled environment ag, in a CEA setting, the weather doesn't have as much of an impact. It doesn't influence crop production as much. And you can understand that. We've spent a lot of money to control the environment. But I was thinking overnight, uh, when you, you, you posed this question to me a couple of days ago, you know, how is this mild winter affecting our spring scheduling, uh, let's say, in the greenhouse? And I would say this, it, it really isn't affecting our scheduling that much with one exception. We have our heat set point at night at 
its set point. So whether it's 60 degrees or 62 for cooler crops or 68 to 70 for tomatoes and cucumbers, we have that set. So the weather doesn't impact that at all other than on a cold night, we burn more fuel to maintain that set point than on a mild night. So the one benefit to the mild winter is that someone like me who just complained about heating oil cost, we're not going to burn as much fossil fuel to keep the house or the greenhouse at its set point. Let's, let's talk for a moment. You've spent time in the outdoor ag arena. So farmers are tuned into the concept of degree days. Right. So so they can map and monitor degree days and the warmer it is, the more degree days we have, they can use that information to kind of interpret, anticipate and program their crops through through the summer, as well as timing releases of beneficial insects to, you know, insects that are migrating from southern southern areas in the greenhouse. Let's stretch that concept of degree days a little bit. Before I answer your question, I'm going to let you jump in. Well, this might be along the degree days point, but it makes sense that controlled environment would not be as concerned about the outside environment changing. Seems to be the point. And I think we've argued in the past and will probably continue to argue that we'll see more controlled environment agriculture moving forward as the environment changes and is potentially less predictable. But I guess then my follow-up is, so if temperature isn't necessarily a problem, then are daylight hours a concern, right? So even if the temperature is warmer, it's the sun still sets at five o'clock. And so you still get shorter days, even though the overall temperature is warmer, which I assume also has an impact on the plants. We've, we've dealt with the heating, the nighttime, the set points there, the daytime. As the weather or a mild winter sets in, we tend to have warmer days. So you and I are looking out our windows, there's no white, there's no snow there, and there should be snow. So that's the difference. During the day, I may have my ventilation, my cooling set point set at 75 degrees. Now, in normal winter conditions, rarely in January and February, unless it's a bright sunny day without a lot of wind, I don't use a lot of ventilation. I don't open the vents because we don't reach 75. Now, most growers are not going to burn fuel during the day to get up to 75 degrees, even though we know the plants will grow faster. All right. So, so it would only be a very sophisticated grower, kind of beyond our reach and scope, that would be able to justify doing something like that. So let's just say in the real world, in the greenhouse, we're just taking whatever the day gives us. Now, oftentimes during January and February, when it's cloudy in New England, we are, we're below the nighttime heat set point. So we will burn fuel to maintain the 60 degrees or the 62 but we're not going to try to get up to that ventilation temperature. So here's the big difference with this year's mild winter. I'm looking out at my greenhouse from the kitchen window during a sunny, say between 10 and three 
10 in the morning and three in the afternoon, and I'm seeing the ridge vent open, which means the greenhouse has warmed up to 75 degrees and it's now needing to get rid of some heat. So here's what happens with scheduling when if we have the degree day concept and we have milder winter with warmer days, we're closer to the ventilation set point. We're closer to the 75 degrees. So we're, we're accumulating growth. So in this regard, crops are going to finish a little bit quicker. Now, what do we have at our fingertips? We're complaining about the price of fuel. I talked about heating oil, but natural gas and propane are right behind. Everything is expensive. So if we, in, uh, in mid-February, as we are now, if we acknowledge that we're having a mild winter and we're seeing daytime average temperatures in the greenhouse rising, it gives us the opportunity, right, to then drop the heat set point a little bit to balance that if we want to stay on schedule. So, so there's another question. Do we want to come in ahead of schedule and leave things as they are? Or do we want to maintain our schedule, which would allow us to drop the nighttime heat temperature a little bit? Does all that make sense? It does. It's fascinating and not what I expected the answer to be. So I'm learning a lot. So and now there's a limit to how low we can drop the nighttime temperature one for crop development, particularly with crops that are not vegetative, that we want to flower and fruit. So we don't want to go too low. But, but on some crops, there's a general rule in, on the ornamental side of, of horticulture, Michelle, where some higher quality can be produced at lower nighttime temperatures. And it has to do with the relationship between photosynthesis and respiration and the fact that respiration takes place around the clock 24-7, but photosynthesis only takes place during sunlight hours. So during the dark period, during the night, the primary plant uh, process that's taking place is respiration. Respiration is where we're burning all that fuel that we made during the day from the sun and we're doing things with it. Physiology, we're growing, we're growing roots, we're growing stems. And, and if it's too cold, we might inhibit flower set flowering and flower set. So, so we, we can't, there's a limit to how far we can go, uh, particularly on crops that we categorize quote unquote as warm season crops, tomatoes, cucumbers, peppers. Uh, there are others that the lower we go, the better, like coal crops. Not that many people are growing them in the greenhouse other than Kale. Right. Well, it's interesting. And then you get into the marketing aspect of it, right? The Your question was, do we want to lower the nighttime temperature and potentially increase the quality of our crop? Or do we want to keep the nighttime heat point at the same place so that the plants get to market quicker? And I guess that is one of those opportunities where I think smaller growers have a better opportunity because that to me is a question you have to ask your buyers, right? If the biggest weekend in the garden center was Mother's Day because flowers, Mother's Day gardening, planting, but if people are outside in March 
and April looking to plant, if it's warm enough to be outside, are they going to want to purchase these things? With higher food prices, if people could get their tomatoes to grow earlier, would they? And that to me is one of those risky endeavors for a grower to decide, are people going to want to adjust to the weather and start their summertime activities or are they going to want to hold on to the tradition of this is what I do? And I think that the large growers might either have to time it so they hit both or take a gamble. But the advantage of being a small grower is that you can talk to your consumers, you can talk to your buyers and find out what they're looking for and help you make some of those decisions. Bingo. That's, isn't this all exciting stuff? And I love your perspective on it, Michelle. See what we need is is growers. We we can uh, we can complain about the price of fuel, and then during a mild win- winter we might say, "Oh, great! I can drop the temperature and save on some fuel." But we need you to to then crunch numbers for us and say, "How much are you s- saving on fuel? How much did you lengthen the crop cycle?" Here's your overhead. Here's the variable costs. Here's this crop of the co- uh, cost of the crop. Did you make a good decision? In the future, is was it worth it to drop the nighttime temperature to save a few dollars where it took you an extra week to grow the crop? See, that's where most growers, uh, we stop short of the finish line. And you've heard me say this in so many different shapes and forms. Any of the articles that production uh, horticulturists write, it's not till the last paragraph that we talk about the economics that's changing. And we're starting to talk about it throughout the article now, throughout the conversation, but we're not quite there yet. So we need people like you to keep pressing on us. You know, are you making a good decision or here are, here are the results of your decision. Well, and this is such an interesting one because you really can compare the two crop budgets for yourself. So first of all, the the, the challenge with crop budgets is that they are different for every individual farm, right? Your heating costs and your rate of refill and so forth is going to be different. And so all you can do on the budgets is put the line items. But... If you have that warmer temperature and you leave the nighttime temperature hotter, then you're going to save, let's say, a week and you get crops to market. And you can say how much you're, how many extra crops you're going to sell this year because you got to market quicker. Or often it's that fringe season, that very early or very late, that you can get the highest price premiums because you're the first one to market. People are so desperate for that first strawberry that they pay way more than they would other times. So like those are like really distinct numbers that we could easily plug into a crop budget to say, what is the money I save on heating or what is the extra I'm going to spend on heating? And then how does that affect how many plants I sell? The other interesting thing that came to mind on like those shoulder seasons I call them fringe seasons, but they're generally called shoulder seasons. The like, as you're getting into the next season is a lot of times, especially with plants, people trying to get into that shoulder season to take advantage of that really high price at the beginning will pick 
fruit and vegetables that are not ripe yet. And because they want to get the higher price and they want to get to the market. But from a consumer perspective, that lowers the quality overall. And so the one of the interesting things that we're saying here is, one, you could end up with a higher quality product because of plant physiology. And even if it didn't come up with higher quality, you could get good quality in a shoulder season and not have that rush to market where everybody's selling underripe produce just to get something there. And that would elevate the entire industry, which is powerful. That's a very good point. But this is such a fun topic and it's taking us in really interesting places. Let, let me go back um, to garden center days, Michelle. And I've told this story a couple of times in the past when we've talked about scheduling and whatnot. My dad used to man the cash register. I would be the one in, in and amongst the bedding plants, stocking and customer service, helping people around. And uh, yes, absolutely. Every spring, we'd have people chomping at the bit to get out and plant in their gardens. Now, in, in the flower side of things, it's impatience. On the vegetable side, it's tomatoes, the two tender annual crops. And how many times we would almost argue with the customers, say, it's too early, don't buy them now. And my dad would, uh, we got to a point where he'd, he'd uh, turn around to me or on the radio, the handhelds, hand he'd, he'd, uh, he'd say, well, I just had another repeat sale. And uh, he, was, he was describing it in anticipation of repeat because, you know, someone came in in uh, early May and wanted to buy his or her impatience. And uh, my dad knew full well that, you know, we still had frost coming and they'd be back to replace them. So I tried to take that and shape it differently so that if I was engaging with a customer, home gardener, let's say Renee, that's been on the podcast with us several times as, as a serious home gardener, I would convince him or her, look, yes, you can, want, you can take a gamble. And Michelle, the analogy is you're talking about the shoulder seasons for the farmer. So here, homeowner, you can take a gamble and try to put some tomatoes in early, but do me a favor. Don't plant all the plants that you are going to have that you have room for. So if you're going to grow 10 tomato plants, just take two or three today and take that gamble. Come back in two weeks when the weather is appropriate. Plant the remaining seven. If those two or three early plants uh, didn't succumb to weather, then great, you're on your way, You've got, you're going to have a few early tomatoes from those plants, but the main crop is still still there. So the home gardener can be responsive and uh, as we've described the nimbleness of, of our small farmers and greenhouse growers. So it's up and down the ladder, regardless of the scale, Michelle, some of these principles uh, hold. So you can apply that same principle to commercial growers. You take 25% and you grow them early so that you get in to take advantage of that higher price, but you leave most of your crop where it is. And I know I, I posed the question to you, but I also have a friend, her family has a vegetable farm in Vermont and we were talking last week and I said, so are you starting your seeds early? And she said, why not? Like the cost of the seeds, and this took me back to some of the conversations we've had, the cost of the seeds is so low. 
and it's not that much labor. So if you started a couple seeds this weekend and it froze, who can, like it's not a huge investment, but the payoff is large. And so it's a risk analysis, right? You're not going to plant a hundred percent right now because their likelihood of a big frost is high. And why would you? But with your extra time, you can de-risk by having more schedules. You can start seeds more often. You can divide it out longer and maybe squeeze in a second crop. My concern actually is that it's going to be like last summer where May and June were really nice and July and August, there was no rain. And so you were better off getting them in early and so waiting. Yeah, I didn't expect this to end up, but I do think that the longer season or taking advantage of the warmer season right now, whether it's adjusting your time, your temperatures, if you had multiple greenhouses, adjusting the, the heat set point at night down in one and leaving it up in another is an experiment, but it's also de-risking because you're going to have plants in different places. And so these are really interesting opportunities for growers to play with right now while things are in flux to see what is the best, what works well for them, but also not putting too much financial risk on any one path. See, it's such a strong principle. And what you're describing, having a few standalone greenhouses and running them differently under different, uh, using that philosophy, the, the, uh, the investment strategy of diversifying one's portfolio, right? This is just another way of describing that, that principle. We know it works. I'm afraid that I and fellow growers of mine, if we were disciplined enough to do that, what you're saying, and it makes so much sense, we would be perennially guilty of then judging ourselves and whichever of the greenhouses ended up doing better profit-wise, right? We would look at each greenhouse rather than the portfolio. So mm-hmm. at that point, we would look back and say, oh, I should have done all of them this way. Next year, I'm going to do it this way, knowing that we can't predict the weather, right? So it's, it's the discipline to just stay the course if someone was able to diversify as you're describing and as we're discussing today, what a beautiful thing. What a, what a cool way to run the business just as a, a, a financial analyst would manage one's portfolio. Well, and maybe it's sort of following that line of the financial portfolio. It's having more than one person involved in the decision making. You have a head grower that is going to map out and is not emotionally involved and able to put, you know, the different experiments, the different paths forward. And then you have the business owner overseeing it or, or vice versa so that you are less emotionally invested. But I, I do see the challenge there for it, you know, for the farm to stick with it. It's really hard in investing to not put a, move all of your investments to the one that was most successful last year, but often what worked last year isn't going to work next year. And so you have to really have that discipline. Exactly. And, and you know, I, you tell me if you agree or disagree with this. I guarantee you that 
the two of us talking this through in this episode, if I were thinking it through or recording an episode like this alone, I guarantee you I wouldn't be touching on half of what you and I are covering. So, and that's what's so neat about the two of us coming together on, on this project is that we're always challenging one another, teaching one another, learning from one another. And it makes it better. It's it's a another form of diversification in the in the podcast, right? We're bringing the different perspectives and and the diversity to the conversation. It's it's really cool. Um, as you're talking through some of these points, I keep coming back or going back to my seventh grade summer growing cabbage, and you know my dad not letting me and my brother grow it the following year because of supply and demand and pricing and whatnot. And it's kind of a, a form of what you and I are talking about now, isn't it? it? It's all different shapes and sizes of the same concept. It is. I'm guessing in the moment that you couldn't grow cabbage was frustrating, but I'm also guessing that you didn't have any idea what kind of impact, like how strong of a lesson that was that you were learning for so many aspects of your life. Correct. And then in the garden center, you know, at some point, my job is to sell tomatoes and impatience to customers who come in wanting to buy them with their wallet in their hand. So at some point, why am I fighting with them? Why am I refusing to sell to them what they want to buy, even though it's too early? You know, it let them buy it. Perhaps I need to do a better job educating them. But if they want to buy it and I don't sell it to them, where are they going? Down the street to my competitor to buy them. Right. That's a tricky one. I, it came up a lot when I did had a lot more vertical farming conversations because a lot of the vertical farms felt like they were going to be very automated and idiot proof and you could just put the plants in and all the sensors would do all the work and you'd have plants. And that didn't work. And I will never forget when UC Davis professor stood up and was like, yes, we teach entire courses on this. Like it is not obvious, but slowly what they were finding out was they were selling these systems, whether it was an at home countertop or an entire system people weren't succeeding. A lot of it was not understanding agriculture or horticulture and the plants. And as a result, they were having a negative experience with the product. And I feel like that's where you're at. It was a balance, right? Somebody really wanted the tomato or impatience and you want to sell it to them one, because that's your job. And two, because they really want it and will be frustrated But it's a balancing act because if they don't have the information and the crop fails, are they going to hold that against you? Is it going to taint their view of gardening? Is it you're losing the future sale? And so how do you balance giving the customer what they need, your best opinion, and also being successful? And I think that that's a huge challenge going back to the weather because, again, it was 60 in Massachusetts this week. And I do think that there's a lot of people that want to get out there and plant stuff or they're seeing the little daffodil shoots start to come up in places. And so are they going to go out there and is that just setting them up for future failure that there's going to be a hard frost in two weeks? Is there going to be two feet of snow in April that disrupts everything? And I think that's the 
the challenge of being a garden center or an extension right now is what kind of advice do you give, right? You, there's this instinct to say it's warm. I want to do this, but we don't know it. I just feel like there's a lot more unknown than I would have expected in an average season. Well, as a native New Englander, if, if we do not have a significant amount of snow this winter, you know, from mid-February through whenever, if we don't have some single-digit nighttime temperatures, I'm really worried and concerned. And back to one of the earlier comments you made to open the episode, I, I feel for the maple syrup producers, they have no control over this. And, you know, the, the consumers are going to be paying significantly more for their maple syrup, right? Because it's having an effect. So, yeah, this, this weather thing, it's not normal. There are a few days in the week where I'm able to work outside around the yard, around the greenhouse, and it's pleasant and comfortable. But most of the time, uh, I'm shaking my head or saying to my wife at night, you know, where's winter? You know, one of the yeah. things we enjoy about living in New England is the season changing. And, uh, oh, you just, you, you, that's a nightmare. You scared the bejeebers out of me talking about 27 well again i'm not going to be around in 2070 but i don't want north carolina weather up here i'd rather go visit north carolina or and at that point is north carolina more equatorial in its climate yeah. what's going on yeah it'll shift up too well i think we we talked when we were preparing for this episode about having some southern growers on so maybe that's our next step is to see how their season changed as well Thank you for listening to this episode of The Grower and the Economist. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate it wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us get discovered by new listeners. If you have questions, concerns, or would like to suggest a podcast topic, please email me at michelle at I love hearing from you. Until next time.